Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. So, my name is Antoinette Burton, and I'm interviewing my colleague and friend, Eileen Ford, who is a historian at Cal State LA and the author of a 2019 book from Bloomsbury, UK, called Childhood and Modernity in Cold War Mexico City. The book came out in hardback in 2018 and then in paperback in 2019. And it's a real pleasure to be here with Eileen to ask her to reflect with us about the conditions under which this magnum opus was produced and all of the interesting and important intellectual pathways it came from and that it leads to. So with that, I will just start with some very um, sort of big framing questions and then we can get more into the week. Is that okay? Sounds good. Okay. So Eileen, tell us about the intellectual journey or inspiration that led you to think about this topic um, do the dissertation research and then pursue it um, so that it could be a book between covers that others could read and teach with. Great. <clears throat> Thanks, Antoinette. Um, well, I think that I would start off by saying that the intellectual journey, um, of course, began with the dissertation. But even before that, um, I had become really interested in questions of gender relations and also um, uh, issues that related to motherhood and childhood in, in Mexico um, before I started the dissertation. Um, when I actually started doing the dissertation re research, it shifted more towards uh, a discussion of childhood um, and looking directly at the experiences of children themselves in relation to adult constructions of childhood in the um, post-revolutionary and Cold War era. was it about that moment that you when you were researching considering your dissertation and thinking about gender and and motherhood and then shifting to childhood what was it about the kind of what was happening in Mexican historiography or in the US Mexico relationship or what were the kind of atmospheric things that that led you to to be interested in even those first um, topics which you ended up not veering away from but you ended up centering childhood more what was it about that moment um, when you were doing your prelims and, and writing your your dissertation research that made that feel so compelling well I think that it started off um, in a general sort of interest in the construction of the welfare state uh, in the United States, Europe, and all of Latin America. And so a lot of the coursework that I did, um, I focused on women, uh, suffrage, construction of the welfare state, and also um, was interested in family dynamics. I think that um, one of the things that was most interesting to me is that the field of women's history, women and gender history in Mexico, 
had received or started to receive considerable attention by the mid to late 1990s, both from scholars in Mexico and uh, scholars of Mexico residing outside of the region. Uh, when I went to Mexico and actually started really digging in the archives, I think that is what fundamentally shifted the project to focus exclusively really on this concept of childhood and children's experiences. Um, and I think, you know, the stories always in what sort of documentation is available, right? What hasn't really been looked at. And so um, one of the first archives that I went to was the Department of Public Education archive in Mexico City, um, which is really, really fascinating for a variety of reasons. Um, after the Mexican Revolution, free mandatory public schooling uh, was really one of the at least ideologically success stories of the revolution. Now, how that actually um, panned out in reality was quite different, but uh, I began by digging around in those archives and found very quickly uh, a massive amount of material on the kindergarten movement in Mexico City. Uh, so according to the archivists that I talked to, uh, there were about 80 boxes, largely uh, very loosely organized and not really cataloged. And so I thought what a treasure trove to actually look at these um, documents. And again, the light bulb just sort of went off and that I wanted to focus on children and childhood, uh, shift the, the discourse away from thinking about motherhood as a concept in women. And uh, it just became really exciting to me to think about uh, using this as my analytical lens to look at post-revolutionary Mexico. Again, the field of childhood uh, and youth in Latin America was really sort of just starting out at that time. And so it became exciting to me. And that coupled with the demographic explosion really just made it seem ripe for, for analysis. What year was that that you went to that archive? Uh, I went to Mexico City and I think for... The dissertation research was 2003, 2004. Um, of course, I'd made some preliminary uh, visits to the National Archives and different archives in Mexico City. But I think, too, a lot of what I decided to pursue during the dissertation research and after was sort of unofficial documentation in relation to the official state documents, church documents, things that maybe hadn't been considered quite as extensively before in, in the history, in the historiography of Mexico. Um, cultural history has really gained a foothold in Mexican historiography in the last couple decades. But uh, again, I think that in the 90s, it was really contentious and wasn't really seen as sort of quite as acceptable as more traditional uh, political and economic histories. And where in Mexico City is that archive? The uh, the Department of Public Education or the yeah. National, well, the National Archive, uh, which I also looked at is mostly the sort of presidential papers and that is located in uh, Lecumberri, which is an old, which is the old federal prison. Uh, and, and so it's a very interesting place to do research. It's uh -huh. really embodies the Foucault's pan, panopticon um, and it feels like that. It's very, um, they're very protective of their documents as they should be. Um, but I also thought that, you know, going to other branches of the government, which was the um, Department of Public Education right there in Mexico City, it changed actually locations soon thereafter, uh, after I used the archive for the first year and a half. Um, but it was located in old sort of garage warehouse type uh, archive and was really, really informal, which I thought maybe 
in some ways was more inviting than the other uh, places that I did research. It didn't feel quite as imposing. Uh, it f felt very welcoming. And so I think that really set the stage for what I was going to look at. It's amazing how that embodied experience of the archive can shape your whole effective relationship to the topic. So I hope we have a chance to come back to that. Um, tell us something about your main argument in the book and the contribution that you think it makes to the historiography um, to date and, and ongoing. And, you know, both in, I would say, in, in the history of Mexico, but also in, as you say, a literature on the history of, of youth and childhood that is was kind of emergent as you were entering into this and now it's a little bit more established as our as our experience here is showing us and also that has its own journals and um so yeah argument and intervention great thanks um i mean i think the main argument of the book really looks at the ways in which this demographic explosion in mexico city affected the development of the city affected the development of the political system in mexico but also how an analysis of childhood shows the failures of the revolution in a longer term trajectory. So if you look at um, what the revolution was supposed to achieve, what revolutionary officials said it was achieving uh, you know, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh, it's a quite different story if you look at, at that through the lens of childhood. And so I think that the obvious kind of connection here is that the 1968 uh, massacre and student movement in Mexico City really was a shattering point in many ways for this idea that Mexico was a modern uh, functioning democracy. And so I think that one of the things that I wanted to see was, you know, what led these students to rise up? Uh, what led these young people, these generations raised in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s uh, to claim their rights to citizenship in the political body, but then also being um, shut down um, very, very violently. I think the what's interesting about the literature on youth and childhood is the tension between the category of the child and then the voice of the child. Do you want to talk a little bit about how your book navigates that? I don't know if you would call it a tension or that relationship Sure. Um, I think that, I mean, that's something that I struggled with throughout the project because clearly most of the sources that have been left behind are from the uh, viewpoint of adults, right? Or from the perspective of what children need or what children should become. And so in that sense, it's always this amorphous idea about what childhood is. It's not a singular experience, obviously, but it's a construction. It's both a construction and a lived experience. And so I think what I tried to do was talk about the ways in which these two interacted and informed one another. Um, and I think that the idea of looking at childhood experiences or children's lived reality on the ground is really, really tempting, but also the sources are limited there. And so I think that looking at those two in, in relation to one another is really what I tried to do. And of course, the interesting thing about the adult constructions of childhood, anything from government programs to cultural productions produced for children or about children, um, they really reveal a lot about the dominant discourse uh, of Mexican society. Even if you're not sort of thinking strictly about children, you can see what the hopes and fears are 
of the period. When you talk about um, the challenges of recovering the voices of the children, and and when I think back on my own question about you know how do you get at those those voices, I I feel resonant in those um, engagements a kind of notion of the subaltern. I mean, children are um, very parallel in in you know South Asian and modern European colonial historiographies with the subaltern. Do you think that's a is that just my um, overdetermining uh, a category, or do you think there's something to be said for the relationship between those categories? No, I don't think it's overdetermined at all. I think that um, there's a lot of similarities there for a variety of reasons. I mean, first of all, children are obviously dependent, right, uh, in varying degrees depending on their socioeconomic uh, background, but also uh, the voices are incredibly hard to get at. And not just that they're not, the documents aren't produced at the time by children. Of course, there are some, there's some drawings, there's some uh, essays that they submitted or other materials that you can get at their children's voices. But uh, I think that they're so problematic in a lot of ways. One, the children are almost always responding to what they think the adult wants to hear. Uh, But also, you know, even if children leave, evidence or leave primary sources, uh, they're so filtered through both racial and and social class lenses uh, that it makes them really problematic as a stand-in for all children, because clearly that's not the case. And I think that's one of the reasons that I tried to look at. I looked at a lot of demographic data. I compiled information on every neighborhood in Mexico City to look at which neighborhoods were growing the fastest, which neighborhoods were the poorest in relation to that. Um, And so I looked at demographic data, but also other pieces of evidence where you could sort of read between the lines in terms of child labor, in terms of um, programs that were very well intended and designed to uplift children, but then in reality, uh, oftentimes had very limited effect on the ground. So I think that, yeah, there's, I think there's a lot of parallels there, both in terms of uh, children's relative level of, auto- of, of autonomy or, or not, or dependency, and also um, the lack of primary sources or the, the scarcity. There, it's not a lack, but a scarcity. And the mediated character of all those two. Absolutely. So when I think about children as historical subjects and agents, I think about them as vehicles for what we might call the reproductive future of the nation. Um, And when I think about that and I think about Mexico, I think not only about the state, um, but I think about the church. And I know that um, the Catholic church plays a very large role, understandably, in your book. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that role was and how you navigated that yourself as a historian. Great, thanks. I mean, I think that the Catholic part to me was one of the most fascinating aspects of the study, especially by the end when I had transformed the dissertation into the book over um, a period of years, that really changed uh, tremendously. And I think that um, the first thing that I would say is that I I don't really see how you can study um, childhood in Mexico and not consider the Catholic church for so many reasons. I mean, at the time of the study, at least 95% of the population is nominally Catholic, right? I mean, that's huge. You also see that the institution of the Catholic Church is incredibly important, both socially and politically at this time. And so what you see is um, 
looking at children and programs designed by the Catholic Church, you can see um, how the Catholic Church was very savvy and using new forms of mass media to reach children, but also using children in a way to navigate its relationship with the state. And so I think that, you know, in the 1920s and 30s, there's all sorts of studies that document the very real animosity between the church and the state, basically in the face of secularizing programs instituted uh, in the wake of the revolution in the 20s and 30s. But what happens uh, in the 40s and 50s and 60s is that you see uh, the Catholic Church really sort of coming into alignment with a much more conservative, uh, politically conservative uh, government, uh, national and, and state government there. So I think that um, looking at the Catholic Church reveals a new part of the story that um, hasn't been delved into as much, which is really the ways in which the Catholic Church regained its power in Mexico in the 40s and 50s. And other scholars have looked at this, um, in especially in the 50s, but not in relation to children and childhood. And so I thought that the, given the fact that the Catholic Church is historically really one of those small places that women were allowed to uh, flourish and to have both a private and public role, um, it made it even more important to me to look at the programs that were designed by women uh, for children, both boys and girls, and the publications that they used to spread these um, these ideas. It's so interesting the way that um, in this context, women are able to carve out a kind of interior sphere for themselves inside an otherwise patriarchal and oppressive institution. Um, do you want to say something about that? Sure. I mean, I think that uh, in this sense, my work builds off of some earlier uh, studies like uh, Christina Boylan's work really looks at how women were able, even in the 20s and 30s, to use their power in religious movements to lay claims to political power. And so it's always those sort of nested relations of power that are the most interesting. And women, while oppressed within this patriarchal, patriarchal society, found these spaces to be active both socially and politically. On the other hand, one of the interesting aspects of these women um, lay organizations in Mexico City is that they were quite um, elite middle to upper class women who were then imposing their ideas about what not just childhood but Catholic childhood should look like which of course you can imagine um, is racialized and very very gendered um, as well even though that's the sort of ironic part e even though women are able to lay claim to um, power they're also using it to oppress um, oppress others. Yes, it's the seduction of respectability, I believe. Um, yeah. So um, you talked about um, the Mexican Revolution, um, and the majority of your book occurs in the period following the revolution. What is the long reach of the revolution on this story, would you say? Well, I hope that what, what I tried to show in the book is that um, first of all, I tried to shift the periodization a little bit and go back a little bit further um, in time and not look at sort of 1968 and that decade as a decade frozen in time, but look at more of sort of the long-term term change. And so I start the book in 1934 
which is uh, significant for a few reasons. One, it's uh, smack in the middle of the uh, revolutionary decade of institutionalization, where the most radical reforms are, are actually instituted in that decade. So 1934 is when socialist education begins in Mexico, but it's also incredibly important culturally, uh, specifically to children as this decade long running children's program, Cree Cree radio program begins in 1934. So I thought it would be interesting to push the periodization back a little bit, not focus strictly on sort of the twenties and thirties in isolation to look at sort of what did the revolution accomplish, but really to look at it in a longer term um, period because in the 50s and 60s, ruling politicians in Mexico City continually use the revolution uh, rhetorically to say that we're still in the revolution, right? So they're using that language well into this period. Uh, as I said, until really in 1968, you see the shattering of any idea that the revolution has actually uh, accomplished the end of the really, really socially stratified um, um, system. And in fact, it, it actually makes it worse. Does that answer the? Yeah, yeah. Um, your um, mentioning of Cree Cree reminds me that the book has some really interesting photographs in it. Um, and maybe you'd like to, I mean, I know this, nobody can see them right now, but maybe yeah. you'd like to talk about them, the ones you chose and the broader photographic archive and maybe how um, challenging it can be to tack between writing and imagery, but how I think important those images, I mean, some of them are quite arresting. Um, the one of the boy at his first communion, for example. Um, and then there's another one um, of, of, of a, a boy, I think, leaning down the benediction of the animals. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, just the broader palette of photographs. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. I think, yeah, the, um, I was absolutely enthralled by all of the photographs that I encountered in this project. And so I looked at a, several different arc, um, photographic archives in the process of researching the book, but I also looked at images that appeared in print media and popular culture. Uh, so I think that one of the things that became very apparent, apparent to me is that photographs themselves were possessions and claims to respectability and evidence for people of the time that they were participating in a variety of things, be it, as you say, Catholic culture, the celebration, these markers of life, but also uh, evidence of their ability to participate in a consumer culture, right? Which is incredibly important development in this era, um, the expansion of the middle class, but um, also I think more importantly, the uh, proliferation of secular ideas and, and consumer products. So I think that photographs show that you participated in that culture, but also that your childhood was worth documenting and that your childhood was um, a special period in your life. Now, on the flip side of that, of course, uh, what you see in a lot of the imagery is really sort of heart-rendering um, images of poverty, other images of children that are clearly not very well off financially, but they're still engaging in play and fun and they look joyous. And so I think that the photographs really show a lot about, um, one, the social stratification, but two, I think the idea that uh, childhood in Mexico is not to be measured by uh, a lot of Western European or, or 
ideas in the U.S. that are circulating at the time, which are also very problematic because lots of portions of the population in those areas did not also participate in an idealized childhood. Nevertheless, their childhood is um, still a childhood with both the sort of uh, joys, the highs and lows. And so I'm trying to not make this study about the overwhelming poverty that some children faced, um, but also the photographic evidence um, definitely makes it clear that that's an important part um, of this story. And also I think an important part of photojournalists attempts to show safely um, the failures of the state. And so it was a way that uh, a lot of photojournalists could talk about um, the failures of the revolution or the failures of uh, trying to make it a more equal and just society without really, really upsetting uh, state officials, right? Because who, who doesn't believe that children should have a better future, right? Yeah. Um, the photographic evidence is a really interesting um, archive itself of the various different kinds of state and non-state actors who were invested in the story of childhood. So I think your response really helps us to underscore that. Um, one of the things your book does is to really um, insist on popular culture as an archive and to treat it not just as a backdrop or not just as a reflection of things that are going on, but to think of it as a very animated, dynamic source of historical knowledge. Do you want to say a little bit about, about the, the, the significance of that for, um, I don't know, Mexican history, for the history of childhood, and also for mediating what you described earlier as, on the one hand, traditional um, domains like social and political history, on the other, and then emerging cultural history? Sure. Yeah, I think that, I mean, very clearly, I'm a cultural historian, also engaged with the sort of social and political at the same time. But um, for a variety of reasons, I feel like cultural history makes sense uh, in this period in Mexican history. So especially in the post-1940 period, I think that you get just really a flooding of um, both films, um, you know, consumer culture, print media, magazines, all aspects of culture, tele later television in, in the later period of the study uh, that really vie for the attention of children in ways that they couldn't possibly have decades before, right? So clearly culture is always an important uh, analysis, but I think that in the study of childhood in this period, uh, these children are growing up right when these technological innovations make popular culture so important um, and so I think it's also, um, you know, a way to look at different components of influencers, I guess, if you, if you will, uh, um, on children. Um, the state, while clearly important, I think oftentimes gets way too much attention uh, in that, you know, a lot of Latin Americanists, rightfully so, are very, very um, concerned with the power of the state. But I think that especially in the period that I'm looking at an analysis just of state power really ignores some of the most important everyday um, uh, facets of what I would say is an informal education for children on the ground. Thanks. Um, this is a bit of a um, left field question, kind of, so bear with me. But, you know, you teach a lot of um, students at um, Cal State LA and you have taught in your career a lot of Latin American history, Mexican history at the survey level, at the upper division level. How does your research 
shape both directly and indirectly what you, how you talk about those grand narrative histories or how and when you drill down into more thematic and higher level courses. Does the history of childhood make its way into your history's introduction to the history of Latin America? And, and how does the research you've done here and the book you've written kind of orient you in that direction if it does? Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, my research absolutely is reflected in the way that I teach uh, my classes are both in content, but also in terms of the, um, you know, as you say, the grand narrative. So I've really tried to talk about larger historical developments in all of my classes, but also always bring the sort of focus uh, into cultural developments and the importance of culture in everyday in everyday life. Um, I guess on a related note, I would say that so much of what I try to do, especially with my students uh, at Cal State LA, is to talk about, you know, how is how are everyday people, how is everyday life really what history is about? Shifting away from this idea that we're going to really um, talk about wars and presidencies and things that, you know, quite frankly, have little um, little interest to a lot of the students, and it, it really doesn't make sense. When we talk about relations of power, how power is constructed, I think that really resonates with especially my students, and um, they are appreciative and really engaged with this idea of how do we deconstruct where power lies and the really sort of complex um, interaction between, say, government policies, uh, uh, cultural productions, other institutions like the church. And so um, I think it's, it's always hard to sort of balance a narrative with really making a, a grander narrative with uh, the sort of aspects of history that I find most fascinating, which is really um, history of, of everyday people. How are they both oppressed, but how do they also both, uh, how are they both sort of subjugated to different government systems, but also how do they resist, right? How do we, what agency do we see in, in the historical narrative? And in the right hands, like yours, the child lets you scale up and down because your book shows that childhood throws an interesting light onto the church, onto the state, but also back to the street. And in some cases, as in the picture of that child in the benediction um, ritual, literally on the ground, right? Um, so it, it's a good it's a good orientation device for scale too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's absolutely what I tried to do is sort of have uh, the vision, both what, what do children see above, you know, uh, metaphorically, and also what is their life like on the ground, which is, you know, um, harder to do. I think the adult construction is much easier or the institutional um, kind of analysis, but I, I really tried to make it sort of a combination of those two uh, points of view. That's great. So, um, what were some of the challenges of doing this work, um, do you think? Uh, I think, you know, there, there are oh, so many challenges. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, one of the biggest ones for me was, um, it, it, you know, it's honestly the uh, teaching load is really difficult to sort of keep a momentum going on transforming a dissertation into a book. And so I really, really wanted this to look vastly different or vastly expanded from what the dissertation was. And so um, I tried to take my time without taking too much time <laughs> to really expand what it was that I was considering uh, 
in terms of childhood, in terms of concepts of modernity in Mexico at this time. And so really, I think time was the biggest issue um, in, in transforming the dissertation into the book. Um, I think another uh, consideration was the following, and this has to do with this idea of, you know, I'm, I live in the United States, I'm not a scholar residing in Mexico of Mexican descent, and there was a real sort of reluctance on my part in the beginning to make this um, a study of poverty in a way that I felt would be exploitative, and so I didn't want to do that at all, and I think in the beginning, I sort of uh, was more focused on uh, kind of strictly cultural productions for children and how they um, were disseminated in Mexico. But as I went back, even in the course of the dissertation, you know, so much of the source material just comes back to this idea that, you know, it's a very real structural problem, um, uh, economic disparities in Mexico. And so uh, I was trying also to find that balance, find that voice of saying, yes, uh, you know, the pre was oppressive, um, but it was also sort of difficult to talk about some of these concepts as an outsider and not feel that I was imposing something um, um, from my own perspective that would have been damaging to, to my subject matter. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And maybe you can dilate on this a little bit, not just any outsider, but a North American outsider and, and the power dynamics of that border crossing at that particular slice of, of transnational history. Can you maybe say a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, in the beginning, I was very, very interested in the transnational flow of ideas. And so um, that was uh, fascinating to me to see imagery, uh, you know, directly from the United States appearing in uh, different publications. So it could be something like Disney, who actually had a collaborative effort with the Mexican state. Um, but of course, all print media, right? So uh, in the 19th and early 20th century, a lot of it uh, emanates from uh, print media from uh, from Europe, particularly Paris, and that switches in the early 20th century. Especially, number of materials of cultural the number of cultural production goes goes up, and it just sort of floods in. I think after um, in the wake of World War II, especially into um, Mexico, and so I was really fascinated by that phenomenon. But then at the same time, I wanted this study to be. Um, considered a study of Mexican history. I wanted it to be solidly grounded in the Mexican sources and the Mexican historiography while still telling that other uh, side of the story. And so, um, you know, relations of power, again, are what interests me in, in the past and, of course, interests me in the, in the present as well, right? Um, both in terms of who I was talking about and where what position of power I come from um, as, as an North American scholar and not to sort of go down to Mexico and I guess, you know, use the archives, write a study and then um, not have a real connection to it. So that was a fear um, that I think maybe slowed me down a little bit, but I hope that the result um, turned out to be something that that's um, satisfactory. So one of the reasons that I was interested earlier in the interview about, you know, what archives you were in and what that was like is that um, archive stories are really interesting and fun to tell. Do you have any um, thing that, you know, strikes you as that's really stuck with you over the years in terms of 
finding a document or struggling to look for a document or engaging with archivists or the surround of the archive? I mean, just the sort of embodied lived experience of archival research. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the interesting things to me was that, um, you know, first of all, I, I was really intimidated in the very beginning because again, I felt sort of um, worried that I would be perceived as uh, someone coming in to make a career or, you know, write a dissertation. Just Perfect bagger. Yes, exactly. And so um, I was very careful, I hope, I think, um, to be incredibly sort of um, maybe timid in, in the beginning until the archivist, a lot of times the archivists, uh, I think in a lot of archives in foreign countries, they're very reluctant. But once they know how committed you are and that you keep coming back and that you're genuinely um, really fascinated by the material, uh, that starts to fade away, right? And so I think that um, being in the archives, uh, the different archives was really amazing for me. And again, some of the archivists, I had a experience with the um, archivist in the Department of Public Education who, you know, after a month or so invited me to go meet his family. Uh, and so we went on a Sunday outing together and met them at the Metro stop closest and uh, got to meet his family and had a really lovely time. And so I think that, um, those sorts of encounters were just really, really affirming for me and just made the work process and the process of looking at all these documents so much, so much better. I also spent a lot of time in different libraries uh, because I became so invested in print media as well. And so a couple different, the, the National Library, uh, which is located at UNAM, and then also another one, uh, the Miguel Tejada, Lerdo de Tejada Library was also really important. So um, it was nice because I didn't feel like I was only at one archive. I really tried to uh, mix that up and look at as many different archival sources as I could about children. I, I sort of went down there with that, um, I'm going to find everything I can about childhood, which is uh, not really the way to do uh, efficient research. But it turns out to be, I think, really fascinating and can make your study uh, uh, well-rounded if you figure out how to dial in on, on those different components um, of a study. Well, and I think your book models um, that exactly. It draws on demographic data, as you said, popular literature, state um, and official documentation, um, things that are housed in libraries. So I think you've you succeeded in creating a kind of um, plural universe for thinking about um, childhood in this context. Um, so you've, the book came out in, in 2018 and you've had some time to settle with it and, and w the world is changing quickly and, and childhood studies, youth and childhood studies are really taking off and transforming. What do you think remains to be done around the topic that you explored, but also kind of more broadly in this field? Uh, I think one thing that I'm really fascinated by, and I think that will be a growing part of uh, the Mex Mexican historiography, will be looking at questions of childhood and youth, and especially in rural areas. And so I think, you know, it made a lot of sense that my study is focused on Mexico City, um, both because of, um, you know, the demographic explosion, the rural um, to urban migration that uh, continues during this period. So it made sense uh, for me to study Mexico City. I think that maybe another 
area of study would to be to look at really how vastly different childhood experiences are in rural communities where, for example, you know, child labor is expected in a lot of uh, places, uh, depending on your uh, socioeconomic standing, right? But also that a lot of the things that I talked about in the book maybe fade into the background in terms of importance, because I think that um, from at least uh, some oral, a lot of oral histories that I've done, uh, the family unit is incredibly, incredibly important and powerful in more rural communities. Now, of course, um, the other sort of obvious aspect to that a study of rural communities would to be would be to look at how migration to the United States um, affected children. And so, you know, um, Anna Elizabeth Ro Rosas has an amazing book that looks at you know, basically the women and children left behind um, uh, in the wake of the Bracero movement and how they, what coping strategies they used, how, how life changed. And so I think that, you know, she's, she's has that amazing study, but there's uh, maybe more work that can be done uh, in different time periods or in different places. In some ways, I, I thought that um, really, really focused studies of some rural uh, communities would be interesting. Um, on the other side of that, I, I'm not an anthropologist and, uh, or a sociologist, and I, I think about, um, you know, disciplinary boundaries in a way that um, I, want, I would want the study to be real historical and not um, focus too much on the family unit. I guess delicate balance there. You mentioned Ana Rosas's book. What's the name, just for listeners, in case they want to check it out? Um, her book is... Uh, Abrazando el Espíritu. And so she looks at, um, uh, again, the families left behind. Okay. And it, the book is in English, but the title's in Spanish. And I, I, the uh, subtitle escapes me. Um, but it's, it's a really great, uh, great book. So last question. Um, you are now a full professor at Cal State LA. Congratulations. <laughs> what would you say to a first or second or third year PhD student in Mexican history now about what the stakes are of doing Mexican history, what the stakes are of doing childhood, history of childhood, um, or anything else that you think is relevant to young scholars now in the middle of their training um, as they think about Latin American history as a vocation, what would you say to them? I mean, I think that one one of the most interesting avenues for research in the future is, you know, historians typically what go twenty five years in the past. Anything twenty five years in the past is barely considered history, right? I think in the sense of Latin American history, it, it normally goes back much further, and so meaning um, historians are reluctant to touch material that is is relatively new. So what you have right now are all these amazing studies of Mexican history that are, are really focusing on the 70s and 80s, mm -hmm. um, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so I think that um, that time period is really, really important to look at. Um, there's a lot of new scholarship on that period that uh, also looks at the ways in which Mexico's uh, supposed democracy was really, really an oppressive regime, especially in these rural areas uh, where you have uh, a lot of sort of um, unrest and oppression uh, by the state. So I think one would be the time period, I think, uh, 70s, 80s and beyond uh, would be really fascinating. Anything in the wake of NAFTA, right, is going to be 
uh, really interesting. I think that in terms of the history of childhood, um, I would suggest sort of making sure that your study is grounded in other areas of the um, histor- particular historiography that you're looking at. So in the case of Mexico, I you know chose to look at church, state power, uh, culture, um, et cetera. And so I think just making sure that your study connects well with other historiographical debates in that country. So in Mexico, it's, you know, there's uh, always um, a, a large number of works about the revolution, about the 60s, right? So making sure that your study is not uh, too narrowly focused on one aspect of childhood, but that it really shows the connections between larger uh, political economic structures. Well, that's a great way to end to think about the history of youth and childhood as a kind of networked methodology. So focusing on children and childhood and youth for themselves, but also for how they backlight lots of really other, a lot of important other historical subjects, phenomenon, struggles, etc. So excellent way to end. Yes. Thank you so much, Antoinette. Thank you, Eileen. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.